Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us on C. diff spores and more. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website, www.cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. So we're now going to shift gears to another potential treatment option for patients with C. difficile infection, and I'm so happy to present Courtney Jones of Rebiotics Incorporated, a fearing company. Courtney is the Associate Director of Marketing and Communications, and she's going to be discussing the microbiome, microbiota, and gut health. Courtney? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me today and for the CETA Foundation for inviting me. Uh, Nancy, to you and your team, I hope that we can continue to add to the toolbox that you've built for CETA patients. And for everybody listening today, I'm excited to share with you more about the gut, uh, the human gut, the human microbiome, and what's being done to really try to address C. diff. You've heard from many of our colleagues in the field that there's a growing understanding about what's happening when we actually talk about C. diff foundation. So I'm hoping that today this adds some additional information for you to be able to use, particularly if C. diff impacts you or your family. So when we talk about the human microbiome and when we talk about C. diff, it's important to step back and really think about the big picture of where does this infection reside if it should come up and what does the gut actually do for us. It's an interesting organ that we, it starts with our mouths and goes all the way through to the large intestine and it actually, when it works well, uh, we don't notice it at all. So kind of like the engine of a car, if it's there and it's doing its job and there's nothing wrong with it, um, we're happy with how our day goes and we can proceed around our normal activities. But if something goes wrong, we notice it right away. And our, our gut is really interesting in how it connects to our daily life because it actually holds the majority of uh, human immune cells. It holds millions of neurons that influence how we feel every day and how we absorb nutrients. It also influences how we respond to allergens or potential allergens. And it's something that begins to develop before we're even born. So this, the gut of the human body, our gut that we carry around with us every single day has a major impact on us and we mostly don't even know that it exists, which I find is very fascinating. And within this gut, we talk about the microbiome. Um, so we have this incredible ecosystem of living organisms and their metabolites and the enzymes that they produce and the waste products that they produce that work together and they interact with themselves as well as with us as people um, to influence how we behave and, and how we interact each day. They digest our food. They prevent pathogens from coming into our systems. And while the gut is the most populated um, microbiome and is the most popular one that you've heard about today, we actually have a microbiome that is throughout and on our bodies. And so you can think of yourselves, um, as I often do, as, think, as we're essentially a planet onto ourselves, which is very interesting and very exciting. The microbiome is throughout our body, as we mentioned, and it has influence on on a huge amount of systems across uh, our entire cells. Uh, we talk about the skin microbiome a lot when it comes to acne. 
We also know now that the microbiome influences how we behave through the gut-brain access. And when we talk about the gut microbiome, particular to where we're at today, we're very interested in how it influences C. diff infections and also multidrug resistance or other inflammatory diseases that impact our gut. So what do we mean when we talk about the microbiome, or how do we conceptualize something that is so complicated? And one of the best ways to think about it is a rainforest. So in the rainforest is a diversity of organisms. They live, they die, they interact with each other, they create nutrients and waste products, and all of these systems interplay to not only keep themselves established and keep each other alive, but to also maintain themselves and to keep order amongst all of the activities that have to go on on a daily basis. The same thing happens in our gut. We see the when the community is intact, when they can interact with each other, when these microbes can interact with each other, they can interact with the host, they can produce their waste products, they can produce their metabolites. This community is maintained and it stays stable with some minor fluctuations day to day, but in general it doesn't really change. What we see as a challenge is when this community structure and how things interact actually gets interrupted. And often we refer to this disruption as dysbiosis. So much like a forest fire or a bulldozer going through the rainforest, our gut community can in experience an impact that can be really challenging. Sometimes it can rebound on its own, and sometimes it leaves us open to, to invaders or to invasive species. And for those of you that garden, you know that as soon as there's open soil, things that can grow really fast, like weeds, will come in and they'll take over the space. The same thing is true for our microbiome. Now, sometimes um, our microbiome can regrow and push those invaders out, and sometimes it can't. In our case, um, the biggest influence on the change in the microbiome is antibiotics. Most of the time, antibiotics are very useful to us, and they're actually one of the most important innovations that we've seen in human history, and yet every once in a while they can cause a problem. And oftentimes, particularly with C. diff, this is the root cause of, of where our infection comes from, and it happens to be the only way that we can treat it as well. So when we're talking about C. diff, it, as you heard from colleagues in the previous talks, it comes in, it takes over, it produces toxins sometimes, and it can result in severely debilitating um, uh, symptoms, which can include diarrhea, it can include fever, or toxic megacolon, and sometimes even death. And while this sounds really intense, because it is, um, there are opportunities to treat it. Today, the most common standard of care is antibiotics, um, and these are ways that we, both in the healthcare field as well as the people that are imp impacted directly by C. diff, go out to get rid of it. Now, I know that many of you that are listening has either had C. diff yourselves um, or somebody in your family has suffered from C. diff, and you know that this is one of the most challenging things to treat because it can come back. And so myself in my own family, I've had this occur where I've had several family members where have, uh, they've gotten C. diff and had it recur, and it seems to be extremely challenging to fight the first time around. 
Um, and I work for a company called Rebiotics. Uh, we're part of the fairing company that has also seen this firsthand. Um, and we asked a really important question when we started our journey in trying to figure out how to address C. diff. We asked, what if? What if the, you had an opportunity to treat C. diff with something that didn't cause it to come back? What if you had a way to change the outcome by finding a different way to treat patients? What if you had a different way to approach therapy that could be something that would be available for people to use, both physicians and patients, to get a hold of that could really make a difference? And so what I'd like to do next is just give you a little bit of a brief overview of what we've tried to do and where we stand um, in terms of trying to address the CDIS challenge that's in our communities today. But then I want to share with you some really exciting data about what we've seen with this ecosystem of the microbiome as we go forward in time. So when we asked ourselves, what if, we started to come at the ability to treat C. diff or the ability to treat uh, the disruption of the microbiome with looking at what was possible. And we know that when we're feeling fine, our microbiome and, and the organisms that live within it, those microbiota, go about their daily functions and that they are important to, to maintaining that health. So we know that if it's working and it's, if it's in the status that it's in, we don't need to change it. But what happens if that becomes disrupted? So what if we could make something? What if we could make some standardized treatment that could address that and put that rainforest back. So that's what we've tried to do. Um, we've built this ecosystem in a standardized form that has gone forward into clinical study, and we've tried to capture that power of that microbiome that already exists in our healthy daily lives and provide it back as a therapy that patients and physicians could try should they need it for their C. diff infection. Now, we have multiple investigational formulations ongoing. Um, you heard a little bit about them earlier today. The most advanced one that we have at this time is called RBX2660. This has gone through three phase two trials and two phase three trials, and we currently have a clinical trial ongoing um, that's open for patients to check out. So at the end of my presentation, I do have some ways that you can connect with us um, but the important part here is that we've really drilled down uh, with, along with the physicians in the field as well as the FDA to try to understand if this microbiome approach, this microbiota-based therapeutic approach is something that could work for C. diff patients. Normally what would happen in these presentations is I'd go into a great amount of clinical detail to talk about the success and failure of our, of our trials and what we've learned. But because today is really talking about the microbiome and connecting it to what's happening with, these, with the people that participated in our programs, I actually wanted to show you something a little bit special. So while we go through our clinical trials and we ask people to participate, they're giving us their time and they're volunteering their, their own selves to try to help us understand if this is something that could help feed us patients in the future. And in addition to that, they have an open opportunity to provide us with samples to help us really understand what is happening when we try to put this entire rainforest back. So the next few slides, what I'm going to show you is the result of their dedication to not only participating in the clinical trial, but also helping us see more about what the microbiome really means to human health. 
So what I have in front of you is a, a graphic. Um, they show you four different classes of bacteria. These are the most abundant in people, what you would see in a healthy group of patients or a healthy group of people is the opposite of what we have represented. So Bacteroidea and Clostridia would typically be the highest abundance of, of organisms that you see, and Gamma Proteobacteria and Bacilli would normally be in very low abundance. And as you can see, our numbers are switched. And these numbers are representing uh, the people prior to uh, receiving our investigational formulation. So these are folks that have had a long-term experience with antibiotics. So that bulldozer effect of that rainforest has come through and completely altered the way that their microbiome looks. And for us, that was important to understand. We wanted to know what impact was, were antibiotics really having on the microbiome and what happens after we deliver our investigational therapeutic. So what I'm going to show you in the next few slides is the changes over time. Um, so we collected these voluntary samples from our, our folks that participated in our study before they received the therapeutic intervention and then for a long time after. So we collected samples up to two years after this 2660 was utilized. So before treatment, they look like this. And now let's watch what happens after, afterwards. So at 7 and 30 and 60 days, after they've received this treatment, we see an incredible change. Now, this is something that's based on our research program, so stay tuned because we hope to have some more data about this later on in the year. But you can see an immediate switch in these samples that are represented. And what's interesting is that as we progress through time to that two-year mark, that change is not only maintained for a short period of time, but it's actually maintained for the entire time. So we see that flip to what we expect a normal microbiome to look like or a more stabilized microbiome that has not been impacted by, by antibiotics. And for us, this is really exciting because not only can we look then at the requirements of developing a therapeutic that is specific to safety and efficacy, but we can really start asking questions about the microbiome itself. Because here, we're not just talking about what happens to make C. diff end or what happens to make C. diff go away, but also how do we set patients up for success in the long run and what does that look like? So it's a very brief discussion today, um, and I understand that there's a lot more to come, and so I'm hoping that uh, you're ex as excited about seeing the folks that are dedicated to understanding C. diff and bringing solutions forward as I am. The microbiome definitely looks to be something that is not only has, having a large potential, but is also very exciting. And there's lots more work to be done. But as we move forward in time, we look forward to going to the FDA to try to address this enormous unmet medical need so no one else has to deal with it in their own lives moving forward. So as you leave here today, I would suggest that not only do you stick around for the remainder of the, of the talks, uh, because there's a lot of information to learn, but also make sure that you find out the resources that are available to you. We have a lot of resources, but also clinicaltrials.gov and the CETA Foundation as well. Um, our parent company, Faring Pharmaceuticals, also has a great website about the microbiome itself, so I'd highly recommend that you check that out. And with that, I appreciate your time.
because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. We thank Ceres Therapeutics for being the sponsor of the Patient and Family C. diff Symposium. Ceres Therapeutics has reported positive top-line results from the Pivotal Phase 3 Ecospore 3 study evaluating its investigational oral microbiome therapeutic SER109 for recurrent C. difficile infection. To learn more about Ceres Therapeutics, please visit their website at seriestherapeutics.com. That's S-E-R-E-S therapeutics.com. we shift now from moving from treatment to prevention of infection, we are honored today to have a representative from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as part of our panel. Dr. Denise Cardo is the Director of the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion, National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Cardo joined the CDC in 1993 as a medical epidemiologist in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. And Dr. Cardo will be discussing antibiotic awareness today. Dr. Cardo? Thank you, Paul, and thank you for the invitation, um, especially thanks to Nancy Carala for and the foundation for not just the invitation, but all the work you've been doing. So at the end of the um, this, uh, symposium is that uh, many of the, the uh, information has been shared and uh, in previous uh, speakers have done a fantastic job, uh, especially talking about uh, our data at CDC, uh, because CDC is a public health issue. And like it was said uh, before, uh, as part of the AR, antibiotic resistance threat report, we do classify CDC infections as a urgent threat. And uh, you saw some progress in hospitals, but we're not seeing the same progress in community. And uh, so we really need to, to look at several things that are needed to prevent, and you heard about infection prevention, but what I'm going to focus is on the antibiotic use. And you heard about the microbiota, the microbiome, and all these amazing um, studies explaining uh, why things happen and also some um, options to address. So I'm just going to focus on the antibiotic uh, use. And, uh, and also, in addition to all the information that has been presented, we're also aware of many studies showing the relationship of antibiotic use and C. diff infections. And not just in the beginning, we thought it was more one antibiotic than another, but now that we know that most of antibiotics will do that, and you heard and uh, very nice presentations about the change in the microbiome. So what do we know about antibiotic use in the United States? Uh, and you see on the map uh, in the colors orange and red on the left is uh, the 
prescriptions in the community about um, antibiotics. And we know we use a lot of antibiotics. Uh, but the problem is not just using a lot. It's using antibiotics many, many times for situations that antibiotics are not needed. And other times, use the wrong antibiotics for the infection that is needed. And we always say that when you see a mask with different percents of use and everything it means, we need to intervene because uh, there is no such a difference in infections in the United States that would justify use and percent of use by uh, state. So it's really a very important intervention that is needed. We do have programs in uh, all hospitals now, thanks to all the work we've been doing together, and, uh, but still a lot to do. The several interventions you heard, CDF is difficult to treat and also has a lot of complications, as you, you heard in, uh, by Dr. McGovern, and infection prevention is critical. But also, as I said, improving antibiotic use is very, very important. It's important not just uh, for us to have data, to have ways to feedback to clinicians, but also education activities are critical, not just to providers, but also for the um, for, for us as uh, patients or family members. So what I want to share with you is that some tools that uh, you can use and also some of the uh, points that we make, not just to providers, but also to patients and family members, because together we can play a very important role and, uh, in improving antibiotic use. So antibiotics are used when needed. Please, uh, we always need to use in specific situations, like if we think about sepsis, but there are several ways that we can decrease overall use and improve quality of use. So I think it uh, really emphasizing when antibiotics are needed is critical, but also emphasizing when it's not needed is very important. And the link between the use of antibiotic and CDF infection is critical. And I think it's, that's when many clinicians in the United States, you start to really see that antibiotics could also cause damage is when we start seeing an increase in CDF infections, especially in many ICUs. So it was a, a, a really a, a way to see that, okay, we need to be careful. So we do have ways to get the message out. And uh, as I said, not just as clinicians, but also as families, and, um, and patients. And I want to share with you some of updates that we have on our site. So you can have the data that was uh, so well uh, presented uh, earlier. You can get access to the data uh, in terms of CDs. You can add, have access to the data in terms of use of antibiotic use in the United States, including in your state. And uh, but also what we recommend for organizations for healthcare settings, for clinicians to really improve antibiotics. So we, and in addition, we have training that uh, people can have access. So I also want to share um, a, a partner toolkit, especially because many of you can really uh, provide sometimes even uh, better information, especially for, uh, as a partner. Uh, in this combating uh, CDF um, as uh, we 
uh, can do. So we really have a lot of uh, um, toolkits that you can use. They're all available on the, our website. And also you can contact us if you need additional things. We work very closely with um, uh, patients and family members, so we can really have a message that is not just what we CDC think is important, but that you need not just to understand, but also to help really promote what is needed for us to make a difference in uh, preventing controlling to give, in addition to all the um, progress we've heard about treatment uh, of severe. Before I finish, I just want to mention um, that COVID has been uh, extremely uh, part of our lives in the past uh, year. And, uh, and I always say that with the COVID-19 response in the United States, there are few things that uh, we are learning from COVID, but that we knew before. Because as you heard from uh, my colleagues in um, healthcare epidemiology and infection control, uh, we have seen um, the lack of basic infection control in many settings. Hospitals are doing much better than before. However, uh, we see that in some uh, post-acute care, like nursing homes, this is not the norm. So we're really seeing there is a gap in infection control overall. A very important gap also in early detection and management, and this is also applicable to, to CDIV in terms of sometimes not thinking about and not managing the way we need, and especially with the new options for treatment, I think this is a critical thing to, to consider. Health equity and health access, it's not just related to, to COVID. It's a reality that we face in the United States and, uh, and how really we have to really consider all this when we want to address any condition and infections such as CDF. And it was said in the beginning that one piece that I think is critical is not just treating, it's really providing quality of life. And something that uh, I'm happy to see many things today that we can really see how to avoid additional infections and also improve the quality of life of the ones who had an infection. We need to integrate everything in healthcare. We cannot just think about one issue and then another issue. So I think even with COVID, it has been very important for us to look at how to, the importance of having data, and we at CDC continue to uh, improve and expand options in getting data for all infections, including CDC infections, uh, not just in healthcare, but also in the community, as you saw. That is an issue. The same way in terms of use of antibiotics, so we can improve. And, uh, and I always say that a strategies uh, have to be based on data and target and tailor for specific places. So that's the reason I really count on you, on you, count on you a lot for participating with all of us in the ongoing communication and uh, really promoting prevention of C. diff infection and 
also appropriate treat, appropriate detection, and appropriate treatment. Because I think it's not just us who are in this call, but also having the policies uh, that will allow that and the commitment in all the levels will be critical. So this is not just applicable of use, but also applicable of, um, of uh, prevention of CDS. And, uh, and as I finish my last slide, uh, I want you to remember that um, we are talking about people. We are talking about people. Uh, many times the person will not just have one infection. Uh, some of the people in this slide uh, had CDF and sepsis. So it's, and we really need to move towards the concept of eliminating those infections in terms, I know, uh, I'm not talking about eliminating bacteria, we you heard about the microbiome, but the infections that we see. Uh, and it's a concept. I know, we know it's could not, never happen, but it's a concept that is critical for us. Also to go just for a response when things happen, but to start predicting what may happen so we can contain uh, that event. And move from acute care to all healthcare and community settings because that's what we're seeing with CDF, and especially with the community setting perspective, I really think the improving antibiotic use is a critical and very, it can be effective also in combating the CDF infection. So thank you a lot for uh, inviting me. Thank you a lot for everything you do. And, uh, and I really will, uh, will continue to work together and, uh, and make a big difference in, uh, in everybody's life. Dr. Cardo, thank you for your collaboration and, and for your hard work also and for a wonderful talk on just a host of important topics uh, as it relates to our, to our society and to this infection. Uh, it's really, it's just an interesting time. Um, you know, as a, as a patient, it's important to be our own advocates and advise our providers uh, of their history and, and, and be involved in the care, um, but also the humanizing element, I think, is really essential. And seeing those pictures uh, of people in their social settings reminds us, and we're going to have another reminder in just a couple of minutes um, of a patient experience also. Before we get there, uh, we're going to shift gears and shift our focus to our youngest patients. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Larry Kosiolek. Dr. Kosiolek is an assistant professor of pediatrics in infectious diseases, as well as the associate medical director of the infection prevention and control at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is the Irene Hines Given and John Laporte Given professor in pediatrics as well. Dr. Kosiolek, thank you for being here today. Great, thanks so much. And you know, I just want to say thank you to the flexibility of everybody. I had a, I had a family issue this morning, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to um, push this back an hour. It helped me a lot. Uh, and so, uh, I'm a I'm a pediatrician, so I'm a bit unique in, in terms of um, uh, the the panels uh, panelists that have talked to you today. And and I want to talk a little bit about C diff in, in kids, and um, not really um, you know reinvent the wheel, but talk a, a lot about how kids are are different. And so. Um, my objectives are, are to describe the differences between uh, the conditions of C. diff carriage and C. diff infection. Um, they can be quite confusing and are, and are uh, both fairly common in children, uh, and uh, to help you understand the important differences between kids and adults. 
to highlight those, I, I just want to take us on, on what, what I um, call an emoji adventure, and, and I just want to use a, a series of emojis to explain uh, what happens uh, in the gut um, both before and after um, C. diff develops uh, as a uh, primer for um, the rest of the concepts that I'd like to discuss. And so this is a, a schematic that I made um, of the gut, and these green um, uh, uh, rectangles are uh, represent the cells of the intestine uh, and the um, red blood vessels underneath, uh, and uh, above those green cells is uh, the, the inside of, of the large intestine. And so what I show here are guardian angels, and those represent sort of uh, the normal intestinal flora. And, and under normal conditions, the bacteria that we have living in our colon, they're very diverse and they're very abundant. We have a lot of different kinds of them and we have a whole lot of them. Uh, and when that happens, when we have that normal intestinal microbiome, when we're exposed to C. diff, shown here is the handsome bald guy with glasses, when we're exposed to C. diff, uh, if these angels are in the gut, they protect us from C. diff from overgrowing and producing toxins. Um, that, that's a condition called colonization resistance. Those, those bacteria um, provide some resistance against that colonization of C. diff. However, if you get antibiotics, particularly that are broad spectrum, those then can cause what we call dysbiosis, where a lot of the healthy bacteria now are killed off. Now the healthy bacteria are less abundant, they're less diverse, and C. diff it, it gets upset. Uh, when that happens and there's this loss of this healthy bacteria, C. diff can overgrow in the gut. And when it overgrows, it has a tendency to produce these toxins, which are these proteins that are harmful to the, the cells in the gut. And when those cells in the gut become injured from the toxins, um, that injury and inflammation that occurs is what causes um, a mild form of diarrhea at best or at worst, uh, a life-threatening inflammatory condition that can result in, in losing your colon or even worse, um, dying from that infection. Um, and the reason that's important to understand uh, is that there's two states that C. diff essentially can live in in, in your intestine. One is, is the healthy, happy um, form of C. diff where it's sort of kept at low concentrations and it doesn't allow it to overgrow and produce toxins. Uh, and the other is after it overgrows and produces toxins uh, and causing um, symptoms and injury. The reason it's important to keep in mind that there's two conditions is that a lot of the diagnostic tests we use can't tell the difference between happy C. diff and angry C. diff producing toxin. Uh, and so that when we use those tests and they're used frequently in children, it becomes quite confusing to know if they have diarrhea from another cause and C. diff is just living there harmlessly, or if they have C. diff actually causing their symptoms. Now, I'm going to um, shift gears a little bit, and I'll circle back on some of those concepts in a minute, but um, you may not know, but, but C. diff actually got its start in the pediatric population. Uh, and so in the 1930s, um, uh, two scientists, uh, Ivan Hall and Elizabeth O'Toole in, in Denver, Colorado, did a study wh where they took 10 healthy infants and just cultured their stool for all types of bacteria every day for the first 10 days of life. Uh, and what they found was that 40% of those infants grew a bacteria that they had not seen before. Um, and it was very difficult to grow in the lab because every time it was exposed to air, the bacteria would die. And so they called it Bacillus difficilis at that time. 
And it was thought to be harmless because these infants were otherwise healthy and they didn't have diarrhea. Uh, and it wasn't until um, 1978, you know, four decades la later, when Dr. John Bartlett uh, and his team discovered that that same bacteria, Bacillus difficilis, is actually Clostridium and now, or now Clostridioides difficile, uh, which is the primary cause of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Still, even though this is the 1930s, we're almost 100 years later, approaching, you know, 100 years later since that initial finding, um, th that, that sort of phenomenon of finding C. diff um, and, and, and not causing problems in children is, is still seen today. And so there's a very important question that as pediatricians we always have to deal with, and that question is, can babies get C. diff infection? What's really interesting is that we know that, that infants younger than one to two years of age We'll, we'll still, even, even, you know, 90 years later from that initial study, even today we still know that about half of infants at some point in the first year of life will have C. diff and its toxins in their stool. And despite that, they will be without symptoms. And so infants seem resistant to C. diff infection. Uh, what our lab has discovered is that these infants, um, even though they don't develop symptoms, they can develop immunity against the toxins. And so it's thought that, that um, that colonization early in life might be a, a, a sort of a vaccination event for them or an immunization event related to that natural exposure. Because infants aren't uh, able to actually develop real infection, um, there's been several um, well-known leaders in the field that have um, petitioned the Food and Drug Administration to caution them against requiring C. diff drugs to be studied in that age group since they don't think it'll cause benefits, since they don't seem to have harm from C. diff infection. And so we know now that even kids can, can have toxins in their stool and, and sometimes still not have signs of infection. Uh, and the reason is, is that, that um, just having C. diff in the gut and having C. diff produce toxins, that alone isn't enough to cause symptoms. Because if, if a human is able to produce what I refer to as the, the shields against the toxin, those are the antibodies, if they're able to produce antibodies, then those antibodies can bind up the toxin in the gut and prevent that toxin from uh, damaging um, the gut and, and prevent a diarrhea. And that's why there's been recent uh, immune therapies um, that have come to market and vaccines that are in clinical trials uh, to help pr uh, promote this immune response and prevent C. diff in, in high-risk adult patients. And so there's several hypotheses about why children are, are naturally protected against toxins. Um, uh, every toxin needs a partner. And so a, a toxin, it's difficult for a toxin to actually harm a human unless the toxin has something inside the human that it can bind to. And so those are typically called receptors where human cells will produce these proteins. They're able to interact with those toxins and cause an inflammatory response. So it's thought that perhaps the, um, uh, infants may not have those receptors. Um, we know that, that once in, uh, children are exposed and develop immunity, that might protect them against uh, uh, infection the next time. And there might be difference in, in sort of the, the bile acids that are in their gut um, that uh, impact the ability of those toxins to have biologic activity in a human. The best story so far that, that uh, is supported by evidence is um, uh, the, the receptor story. And so this, this I show a picture of, of some baby and adult rabbits here and a, baby, and a picture of an infant um, because in the 1990s, uh, a group in Boston um, uh, did some animal studies where they took intestinal tissue from an adult rabbit and an intestinal tissue from a baby rabbit. And what they showed is that the intestinal tissue in the baby rabbit wasn't able to bind C. diff toxins. 
And so this hasn't yet been proven in, in human babies, um, but that's the leading theory is that young babies don't actually express the machinery uh, needed uh, for C. diff toxins to have their effect. And it's thought that perhaps maybe after the age of one to two years, that, that natural protective effect goes away. Despite um, infants not developing true infection, uh, it's, it has been confirmed uh, that babies can uh, spread C. diff infection. Um, there's been studies of um, adults with, with community-associated C. diff, meaning they have C. diff infection but weren't exposed uh, to any hospital settings. Uh, and and in, in um, adults who have that type of C. diff infection where they haven't been in the healthcare setting, um, if, they, if they have um, infants living in the home, they're more likely to develop uh, community-associated C. diff infection compared to those um, that have not developed community-associated C. diff infection. We've also seen cases of um, um, twin babies spreading it to each other. Uh, we, we've seen those um, types of um, uh, um, phenomena as well. Uh, and so it's very well accepted um, that, that uh, we do need to be careful um, around babies. And if you are someone who is at risk for C. diff uh, and changing diapers frequently, you have to be um, uh, very strict with hand hygiene to prevent developing that infection. So what about older kids? I mentioned that after about one to two years of age, um, uh, children become susceptible to C. diff. And so we do know that older children certainly can get infection, but we also know that older children can also have C. diff harmlessly living in the gut. Um, and this is, becomes very tricky sometimes because we know that even in children that are, that are high risk for C. diff infection also are at high risk for C. diff just harmlessly living. So for example, if we took 100 children with cancer and just without any symptoms of diarrhea and tested all of their stool, about 30 of them would test positive for C. diff. If, if we had children with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, 100 of them, tested them all when they were well and didn't have diarrhea, about 20 of them would test positive for C. diff. And so that becomes really tricky to identify whether or not C. diff is causing symptoms in those patient populations. And so what, what I do as, as an infectious disease doctor is when I see consults for children who are suspected of C. diff, uh, I, I um, assess the child for risk. And so what are their underlying risk factors? Have they had any antibiotics? Um, do they get tube feeds at home? Um, do they have any uh, immune problems? Um, we all, I also try to see if there's any other causes that could potentially be causing diarrhea that we haven't identified, um, such as um, intolerance to their, um, food, uh, their feeds. Um, just an antibiotic alone is enough just to cause diarrhea uh, without C. diff. Um, there can be other um, viruses and bacteria that can cause diarrhea, so I encourage um, uh, to look for that. I look at the type of test was done and see if the test is able to identify the toxins or just C. diff in general and not be able to tell us if it's producing toxins or not. I think the most important thing is what is the response to antibiotics, particularly with vancomycin and, and fidaxomycin, which are now standard of care in adults. Um, typically, if you have C. diff infection, you will get, your diarrhea will get a, a lot better within a few days of starting. And, and so if somebody, you know, calls me and says, you know, Larry, they, they've gotten, you know, and now a week of vancomycin and their diarrhea hasn't gotten any better, you know, oftentimes they, they think, well, maybe I should increase the dose or, or move to a different antibiotic or, or give them a longer course of antibiotics. In that case, I, I strongly sus suspect that if they're not responding to antibiotics, that they likely have another cause of diarrhea and the C. diff is just living there harmlessly. We still don't know exactly where kids get C. diff from. 
we do know that the majority of kids with C. diff infection have not been exposed to healthcare settings. Um, even if they are in healthcare settings, it doesn't seem that other sick kids in the hospital are, are um, transmitting to other kids through the hands of healthcare workers. It seems that children more likely acquire this somewhere in the community, come into the hospital with it, and then when they get the antibiotics, they get C. diff after that. Or um, if they get antibiotics in the community for an ear infection or strep throat, um, that that C. diff in the community can lead to an infection. There's several hypotheses. Some suspect that food or water sources may, may be um, the culprit. Um, C. diff can be found in dirt and other parts of a normal outdoor environment where kids are often playing. Um, we do know that sometimes other, other family members um, can have C. diff and may transmit to their family members. And so these are all hypotheses in the U.S. The role of the environment for the spread of C. diff hasn't been um, rigorously evaluated as it has in, in Australia and Europe and other parts of the world. But it's, an, uh, I think, an active area of interest to prevent these community-associated infections. So how can we treat and prevent C. diff in kids? You know, this is really very similar to adults, with the exception is that we haven't studied a lot of these things in, in children as well as we've studied them in adults. Antibiotics are still the mainstay. Um, probiotics, um, particularly in, in children who have um, risk factors for recurrence or who have actual recurrent infections, is something that I'll prescribe. I usually won't do it um, just uh, preemptively to prevent a first infection. Fecal micro microbiota transplantation, there's been a lot of work on this in children in the past um, several years, and it's now shown to be very safe and effective, just like it is in adults. What we don't know is what the long-term effects of um, fecal microbiota transplantation are in children, and, and that's something that I think we do need to figure out. There's lots of clinical trials ongoing, other antibiotics um, like ritonilazole, um, bezlituximab, uh, other drugs that mimic fecal transplant complex um, uh, arrays of bacteria are being studied in children. Uh, and my hope is to eventually get children into vaccine clinical trials where we can prevent this um, long term. So that, that's my talk, and I'm happy to um, uh, answer any questions. Well, thank you so much for a really uh, riveting talk. It, it's, uh, you know, obviously a population that needs appropriate attention in our children, our next generation, and um, it's important that we include both our, our youngsters and, and uh, of course, our adult population. So, you know, as we're, as we're going through this conference, we've heard a lot of information about C. difficile. We've heard information about infection control and uh, antimicrobial or antibiotic stewardship and using the right antibiotics and managing the situations appropriately. But I think all of us uh, as, as individuals should hear about the experiences from patients. What do patients go through? I mean, that's, that's what this discussion today has been about. It's about educating patients and empowering patients to understand this disease state. Thank you for joining us today on C. diff spores and more. And we are grateful for your dedication in the healthcare and health and wellness community. At this time, the members of the C. diff foundation would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. To learn more about their products and how Clorox Healthcare is keeping the environment safer, please visit www.cloroxhealthcare.com forward slash Radio. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and development of the new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, protecting the gut microbiome, clinical trials, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff, 
prevention and treatments, please visit the C. diff foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. Help them to help you to help others. To learn more about upcoming events that you will not want to miss out on, please visit the C. diff foundation's website. We send our get well wishes to all the patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness-draining illnesses being combated around the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.